Lear Corporation used to be all about seeding. On this week's show, its CEO tells us today's company is so much more. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most spectacular supplier companies in the business, Lear Corporation. And the reason we're doing that is we have their president, their CEO, and a director of the company, Matt Simoncini. And Matt, it's great to have you on thank the you. show. Thank you. It's great here. to be here. Thank you. Joining us today also are Brent Snavely from the Detroit Free Press and Jamie Butters from Bloomberg. And great having you guys here with us Glad as well. Thanks. You know, uh, we'll get into a whole lot of different things, but of course, Lear is probably best known or perceived for all its seating and all the work that it does on the interiors of vehicles. Matt, I'm wondering what you guys think about this move to autonomous cars, where maybe we can throw the steering wheel out the window and the pedals and all this stuff. It's going to change the interior. How do you see that's going? Well, it's going to change the interior. It's going to change the industry in many ways. Um, With the interior specifically, John, the office, uh, the the car becomes a rolling office in many ways because people are going to want to do different things. But we're still going to need to protect the occupants, so that will stay the same. Um, And I do think most autonomous will have an override. So you're still going to need to be able at some point to control the vehicle if you're in an area where um, it doesn't have coverage on the grid. I think the changes are going to be amazing. It's going to take in a massive amount of software and data uh, to move the vehicle and code to be written and cybersecurity to make sure that people aren't hacking the vehicle. And that all plays in really well, not just in what we're doing with the seating, but what we're doing in our e-systems division as well, which is right in the forefront of all those type of changes. And. Uh you know, another part of it, too, of course, is, is crafting new interiors. And you've recently opened this new craft center in Detroit. Right. Why did you put it in the city of Detroit? Your, your headquarters are a little bit outside of there. And, and what are you trying to accomplish with this? Well, we think we were calling it the Innovation Center, John. And we think by having it off campus, then the individuals that are there <coughs> won't get pulled into the day-to-day demands of engineering a product for launch. But we also wanted to leverage the creativity that's going on in the city of Detroit and leverage two of the universities that are right in Detroit with the Center for Creative Studies and Wayne State University using the Q1 line, leveraging the creativity and software and design that's happening in the city of Detroit in a, in a, in a building that spurs innovation and creativity. Get a little bit off the mainstream. So this one's pure innovation, thinking about how a seat would look in 10 years, you know, how a vehicle will drive in seven years, looking at what we do in leather and fabric and see if there's other alternative ways of putting them together, not just for automotive, but for non-automotive. And uh, we can't think of a better time to be in downtown Detroit to do this type of innovation. Matt, is there more pressure to come up with new ideas with innovations, given that kind of the growth in auto sales globally is kind of slowing down a little bit? I think there is. Everybody's looking for ways to um, differentiate themselves. And for us, with, you know, leather and fabric and sewing and foam, we're looking at ways to make your seat crafted, but we're also bringing innovation like the intelligent seat, where we can do things like take your EKG, we can adjust your harness, we can take your body temperature, set your body temperature at the right amount, um, absorb energy in a crash, make sure the airbag gets deployed properly, adjust your spine. These are all technologies that are available today in the seat. So the seat continues to evolve. We continue to find ways to innovate as a way to continue to penetrate the market. So yes, I think it is important. Which of those, I'm sorry, Brent, which of those biometric kind of things 
mm-hmm. are going to come to market first. I mean, we've heard about you know mm-hmm. seats and interiors that can tell if a, if a person is drowsy or if they're intoxicated. Uh, maybe if their heart is uh, having a, a, an issue, and what what do you right. where are you hearing from client from your customers? Well, I, I think we're in development now with several automakers on what we're calling the intelligent seat into into seating, um, and one of the main aspects that they're excited about is health and wellness. So we've worked and been endorsed by chiropractic associations on how to properly adjust your spine because we believe if you're in a proper sitting position, you'll be a better driver and you'll be healthier and your blood pressure will come down and your heart rate will come down. And that's an aspect I know that's of great interest to several automakers, premium automakers. I also think um, having monitoring of heart rate, um, EKG, if you will, is important, especially if you think of an older um, driver maybe going down to Florida, driving down, driving 10 hours and comparing his EKG or her EKG to baseline, knowing when to pull over. Um, it's also not just that, in a crash, in the event that we can send the vital signs of the occupants to the oncoming emergency workers. These are all kind of aspects that are available today that the premium automakers are really interested in getting into their seats. Is there a timeline for that intelligent seat? I think you'll start seeing it in production in about three years. You've made some acquisitions in recent years. One of the larger ones was uh, Ottawa Eagle. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about that, that acquisition, mm-hmm. what that's doing for the company, and then maybe sort of what the outlook is for additional right. growth through acquisitions. Um, Eagle Ottawa was the number one premier leather provider to the auto industry, and we feel very fortunate to have had a chance to acquire them and bring them in. And for us, it was unique because it, it was an extension into something that we had never done before, really, with leather. So we left them alone. We didn't uh, break them apart. We kept the team um, somewhat autonomous and integrated their capabilities into what we do. And we think they were the missing link to provide the highest crafted seat. And there's a trend to leather, whether it's on the seats or in the panels. It's a way of differentiating your seat if you can put it in leather. We actually think a combination of leather and fabric because you know the, the, the ability for fabric to breathe on a back panel is important and the durability of leather and the cosmetics of leather and some of the um, higher use panels. So we felt in, in many ways they were the missing piece of the craftsmanship, combining them with fabric, combining them with our ability to sew, which we've always been a leader at. So it separated us, and it provided us product capability that no other seat maker in the world has. Through acquisitions, I think sometimes the best deals are the ones you don't do. Um, we're looking for those deals that provide unique product capabilities for us. We'd like to buy. We have an extremely strong balance sheet. Um, at any given time, we have 10 projects in discussion. But it's not just about getting the right strategic fit, it's buying at the right price that makes sense for our shareholders. And so that balance is difficult to achieve. And much of what we're looking for, quite frankly, is not for sale. So that starts a longer dialogue, much like Eagle Auto wasn't wasn't, uh, when we approached them. We've been talking a lot about seeds, leather, and cut and sew and all that, but you guys do a lot of high-tech stuff, and I was very interested to see that you're getting into all this kind of connectivity, Mm -hmm. vehicle-to-vehicle, vehicle-to-infrastructure, over-the-air updates. Talk a little bit about your strategy and going into that part of the business, because, again, as I said at the top of the show, everyone equates Lear with seeding. Right. Well, it's an exciting time, and you've heard me talk about that before, not just in the industry, which I think is one of the best times ever to be in this industry. It's also a great time to be at Lear Corporation. 
We have a division called E-Systems. It grew out of the traditional electrical architecture. The revenues have more than doubled in the last five years. It's up to about $4 billion in revenue, actually over $4 billion. And that business is shifting from traditional wire harnesses and electrical distribution to now managing data as well as the power. And that's going to become more and more important as cars become intelligent. They're rolling smart devices. We all know that. And some of the unique capabilities um, that we can bring to the table that we're in development on, for instance, is updating your software um, so you don't have to bring it to a dealer. Now, that's a benefit to the consumer. It's a benefit to the car companies because it's lower cost, and we can do it in a much faster and easier way. But that requires you to have cybersecurity, right, because everybody's worried, as they should be, with systems being corrupted. So we've had to invest in moving data. Um, through our acquisitions of Arata and Autonet, these were leaders in cellular communication. In fact, many of the, when you drive down Telegraph in Michigan, you'll see the Arata um, units on, on the road, and that's helping manage the grid-to-vehicle data communication. Um, for us, it's a whole new avenue as we pivot from being hardware providers to actually getting into the software. John, we have over 500 software engineers at Lear Corporation now. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of people still think of Lear as, you know, the old Lear seating, and that's still core to us, uh, the ability to assemble precision uh, components anywhere in the world. <clears throat> that's important and that will always be important. But I think what's just as important and as exciting is the ability to move data now in everything that you do, including seating, and there's a convergence. So we see electrical that was distinctive and seating that was distinctive. Now you're starting to see these two come together as we write code for the intelligence seating. So for us, I think we're very unique in these capabilities, and I think it speaks to our, our uh, opportunity to grow sales faster than the market overall. Did you ever think in your career that you'd be involved with cybersecurity? <laughs> no, I didn't, other than the fact that uh, whenever I put my tax return in, it was... Uh, you know, always corrupted, right? But uh, I think in every avenue of what we're doing, that's a fact of life these days for everybody, whether it's in your personal life, filing online, doing banking online, as well as it is for the vehicles. I think consumer reports or car and driver uh, prove that, you know, cars can be hacked, and that's pretty scary. I believe as an industry, that's an area that we need to continue to invest, and that's an area where I think, you know, government can assist. You mentioned earlier, you called it one of the best times ever to be in the industry, and Lear's sales have been growing annually for a number of years. Um, you know, but U.S. auto sales are basically at a peak or a plateau. Mm -hmm. um, so why, why do you say it's the best time ever, and, and mm -hmm. can Lear continue to keep this growth uh, going? Answer the last part first, yes. Um, as far as the industry overall, <clears throat> First and foremost, it's a global industry these days, and we're seeing continued growth in Asia driven by China. And while the percentage is smaller, it's on a bigger base, and we expect that to continue in the macros tell us that. Europe was a little bit slower coming out of the um, downturn of 08 and 09, and we're seeing continued growth there, even with Brexit, and the recent sales numbers support that. As far as North America, the macros in North America are still quite good, whether it's um, employment levels, housing starts, interest rates and credit availability, low cost oil and gas. Um, all this speaks to a fairly healthy economy. And so one I would say, even if it plateaus, it's plateauing at a pretty high level. Uh, number two, it's a global economy. 
Um, three, we're seeing growth in the major markets in Asia and in Europe. So I think from a global standpoint, and Lear's obviously a global company with you know, two-thirds of our sales coming from outside of North America, we'll benefit from that. So I, I think it's a good time. And, and for us, at the end of the day, if you look at the major trends in this industry, whether it's safety, CO2 emissions, uh, global platform, direct component sourcing, we're well positioned to take advantage of all this. And then the mega trend of connectivity, right, which requires you to have um, software, which we have, and the ability to move data, which we do. And ultimately, like I was saying a little bit earlier, you're connected to a seat. It's the first line of connectivity. You're strapped to it. And so I think that speaks uh, well to continued growth as, uh, also. Everything you said is exactly right. You know, it's, mm -hmm. a, it's, a, it's a big and healthy industry. Basically, everybody's <clears throat> making money. Mm -hmm. And yet the capital markets have turned against autos. I know. Strongly. <laughs> Frustrating, isn't it? Uh, and so, you know, is there anything that, that Lear needs to do to break out of that, raise right. dividends or share buybacks? Any, I mean, you've been raising dividends. Right, we, and we've been doing both. I don't think that alone um, does it. I really do believe that we just need to continue to perform, <clears throat> and I think we need to continue to get the story out. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we don't have the luxury of not being active and transparent in our story to the capital markets because they're still well-versed in the last 20 years of history when we didn't do a good job managing capital, quite frankly. So I think the recent history of five years and the next five years will separate. Historically, autos have traded as a multiple of EBITDA four to six, where broader conglomerates are six to 10, and tech, pick a number, right? In Tesla, I don't even know what their multiple is, probably infinite, infinite. when you put it on a zero base. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's a couplefold. We need to continue to tell the story. The one story that needs to be told, though, is the fact that Apple and Google, high-tech companies with really strong multiples, want to come into our space shows you the opportunity, the business opportunity and the sales growth opportunity in our industry. And I think we need to recognize that, and I think the investors in time will recognize that. The bankers absolutely recognize it. It's just the investment community. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that opportunity, as we go forward into all these mobility services, you know, ride sharing and car sharing, Uber, Lyft and whatnot, there's a big debate going on in the industry right now. Are we going to sell more cars in the yes. future yes. or fewer cars? No, we're going to sell more. <laughs> what if everybody starts sharing? Well, that, to me, that just means more people are going to be using a vehicle. Cars will have a limited amount of mileage, and I think that is going up. I think the length of service in a vehicle is going up because quality is better. The durability is better. We're making better cars today than we ever have, right? But the demographics tell us there will be more drivers globally. And I think uh, mobility for large mass um, um, areas, civilization, cities, if you will, um, will only have a certain amount of miles in a vehicle. And the faster it gets used, I would argue, the faster you need to replace it, which means higher sales growth. So I, think, I don't think it's going to have the impact on that many are saying that this is ultimately going to reduce sales. I think if, in certain cases it could actually increase the sales of a vehicle because you'll get to the end of use faster because the car will be in constant use. And, and some people say as you make mobility more affordable, more people will use it and that'll drive it. But the other thing that they've talked about is, you know, the typical car today, mm -hmm. people put about 12,000 miles on it a year. If you start sharing it, now you're going to rack up 100,000 right. miles easily. Right. And in two or three years, I mean, th these cars are going to look like garbage. Your beautiful interiors are going to be all stuffed up. So there's this talk of, hey, maybe we got to start thinking about how you can easily replace this. Right. Uh, I, I've been told that the cost of replacing the carpet 
in a luxury car. 5,000 bucks. There's about $50 worth of carpeting, but you got to take the whole car apart to <laughs> right. put the new one in. Are you looking at redesigning interiors with this in mind? We are. Um, our main focus has been able to personalize your seat cover. We have a brand called Autograph. It's an aftermarket seat cover business where you can refresh and make your seat look brand new. So we've been working on designs that allow us to do that and get the patterns that allow us to do that and work um, together with the OEs and the, and the dealers to make sure that we don't void the warranty or the, um, the safety protocols in a seat. So yes, it's going to change uh, the way that we do it. Now, as far as the carpeting, I can't speak to that, John, just from a standpoint, the first thing that needs to come out is the seat. Yeah. And the seat's a safety product because you're, you know, bolted to the floor of a vehicle. So it's, it's a dilemma, but I think there's other ways they can design the carpeting so it will come out. The question is, do you even need carpeting? Uh, is there other materials that you could use that will be more durable? But these are the type of changes that I think are opportunities for innovative suppliers. And these are the type of ideas that the OEs are asking for help with. Um, and being part of a a tier one, a partner with the OEs, I think you have the responsibility to come with these type of solutions. And that's what we're working on. And so, again, when I say it's an exciting time, these changes are going to provide huge opportunities for us in the industry and for tier ones like Lear. I thought we'd uh, maybe jump back to Detroit for a second. We, you talked about <clears throat> the Innovation Center and, your, and Lear's physical presence. But you've also become more involved in the city and the Detroit community, right. donating uh, $2.5 million recently to Wayne State for mm -hmm. a new auditorium. I just thought, uh, wondered if you could touch on that and what you see uh, as Lear's role and responsibility in, in the Detroit community. Well, you know, Lear has a long history of supporting we business, um, communities we do business in, and that predates me. We think it's part of our strategy and it's a core competency or a core value that we have to support the communities we do business in. Now Detroit's our home and Detroit's needs are massive. We think part of our employer of choice initiative is supporting the communities where um, employees live and work. And as far as the Wayne State donation, one, that's where I went to school, Two, they're a great partner to Lear Corporation. I think it provides the opportunity for my executives to continue their education while working, and that was a great investment to make. We're proud of what we've done in the community. I think it sets us apart from other um, suppliers and other corporations, and uh, I always ask myself why you know, others aren't doing what we do. It's been great. I'm proud of it, um, but it's not just Detroit. It's Munich. It's Shanghai. It's the Philippines. It's Juarez, um, and I think it's important to our employees, and it's, quite frankly, it's the one thing they point to, or one of the main things they point to when they talk about Lear Corporation, how proud they are to work for a company that does this. One of the other businesses that you're in is uh, electrical architectures. I, I'm curious, does that tie in with electrical cars, EVs, and uh, do you see that as part of this exciting thing oh, of what's going on does. in the automotive industry? It absolutely does. I mean, it's all about moving power. Right? So electrical architecture is moving power. With EVs, the power is higher. Right? And you also have a battery charger. Um, and so it, it is part of the architecture. Now, they're evolving, whether it's high-powered, hybrid, uh, full electric. But even traditional um, internal combustion powertrains need more computer management to meet CAFE standards, whether it's start-stop technology. These things drive 
complexity in electrical architecture, and that's right in Lear's sweet spot. I mean, we were the leader, for instance, in the smart junction boxes. We invented it as part of UTA, which is now part of Lear, many years ago. And uh, they go hand in hand. For us, we do the electrical architecture, for instance, on, on the Chevy Volt. Um, and it's a high-powered system on top of a traditional system. So it's, uh, it's a great opportunity for us. We believe that electric vehicles will penetrate the market anywhere from 3 to 6% over the next uh, five to seven years. So it's a huge opportunity. And most of that in California? Uh, most of it actually in Asia, oh. uh, starting <laughs> in China. Right, but in the North American market, yes, California. Although we're seeing it other places, like my daughter, who's been raised in a traditional... Um, Detroit home, if you will, right? Um, she wants electric vehicle because she wants to give back or do her part uh, for the economy. And I think that generation um, believes in recycling and believes, as I do, believes in the greening and, and reducing greenhouse gases. And, and for them, I think as they become driving age, they'll be more inclined to buy these type of vehicles. And don't you think uh, with the Chevrolet Bolt EV coming out uh, later this year with a almost 240-mile range, maybe that's the tipping point that really it's gets best that. best in class. I mean, um, GM, GM has delivered what Tesla promised, which is kind of neat because it came from our hometown, John. Uh, I think it's an amazing vehicle, um, and I know Ford is right on the heels as far as range and cost, and so it's an exciting time. And I think um, as the battery technology gets better, um, the cars will get better. Um, but the OEs, and specifically the domestic OEs, are doing a great job. In Paris, the whole show we talked about a little bit earlier was electric vehicles. And so everybody's rushing to embrace that. And so whether it's driven by fuel or CO2 emissions, it is a trend that's going to continue, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Matt, what do you see as the biggest threat? You're so optimistic and, uh, about all the things going on in the industry, but clearly there are some concerns, I mean. Right, I, I mean, um, I, I want to talk about the threat as an industry overall, and then I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the threat, I think, to Detroit. Okay. Okay, starting with the industry, um, the regulatory environment needs to be in supportive, and I think in many cases, the regulatory env environment in the U.S. And, and to a lesser extent Europe is very damaging to the autos. I think we need to be very aware of the investments and we need to cultivate and support the industry because that's one of the major providers of jobs, mm -hmm. not just in Detroit, but throughout the nation. And most countries are working very, very hard to foster their automotive industry. And I think sometimes we take it for granted because it's been here for so long. As far as Detroit, um, my concern is I'd like to see a lot of the development that's happening in Silicon Valley come back home where it belongs, in the city of Detroit, because it's driven by the auto industry. I think it's a great opportunity for the city. I think the innovation center that we're opening is our way of saying, hey, here's a nice place to do application and software development, and let's bring some of that excitement back from Silicon Valley, where we're an afterthought, quite frankly, the auto industry. We're in Detroit, this is our home, this is our business, and I think we can attract people here. If I'm given more than 10 minutes to talk to a student that's leaving college, I'll convince them not just on Detroit, which is a great place to work and live again, but on the industry, because we're at this cusp of where we can change the world. There's this giant convergence of tech and automotive. We're providing design, cool stuff, and jobs on this side. And on this side, we're changing the world with CO2 emission and, and mass transit and urbanization and mobilizing people. So it's a really great time to be in the industry. And I think 
Um, a lot of designers, if explained that, would want to come here and work. And then I know if you've been downtown recently on a Friday or a Saturday night, it's such a cool area to be back, to work and live. And, and that, our innovation center was our way of saying, we believe now's the time to be here. When you, when you mention regulations and, and the challenges that they present, uh, what, what, what areas are the biggest challenges or what are you referring to? Are we talking the, you know, the stricter cafe and greenhouse emission standards that are coming or you, something else? Yeah, I think, I think we have to be conscious of over-regulating the industry. <clears throat> um, I, the car companies and the cars today are the most durable, highest quality they've ever been and the safest. And the car companies, I think, now are in an endless loop of recalls because of concerns with NHTSA um, that I think in, in certain cases are overreaches, quite frankly. Um, and I also think that on the CO2 emissions, we have to be conscious of consumer preferences. We can't front run what the consumers don't want, and I think some certain cases they do. But, you know, in the wake of Volkswagen mm -hmm. cheating on diesel emissions right. and Takata uh, having, you know, airbags that are supposed to save people, uh, malfunction and kill people, it certainly rallies you know, regulators to want to keep people safe and to keep the environment safe. Yeah, the, the one comment I would make is you can't legislate morality. Mm -hmm. In the end, if, if a company doesn't have ethics, then I don't think any regulation in the world is going to change that. Um, you know, what those two companies did in those particular cases obviously were, were wrong. Um, and in certain cases, people died because of it. I don't think regulations would have changed that. And so I don't think you punish the many for the sins of the few. Look, uh, we're getting down to the end uh, right here. We've sure covered a lot. Uh, Matt, i got to tell you, it's been fascinating to hear you thanks, talk about thanks, this. Matt. Because like I said, starting out, everybody thinks seats, but you guys are obviously, you guys, I see, Lyricorp is into Thank a whole you. lot more than that. Thanks, John. Really impressive. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and i got to thank uh, Brent Snavely from the Detroit Free Press, Jamie Butters from Bloomberg. Great having the both of you on board helping me uh, interview Matt here. Thank you both. Thank you. Anytime. And of course, have to thank all of you for having tuned in.